Well, we uh, are going to continue in our work through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, 12 to 17 is where we're going to be today. I invite you to open up your Bible to that. Uh, and Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome has some of the worst news ever imaginable and some of the best news ever imaginable. We see both of these things as we go through the book. So far in Romans, the good news is that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, everybody who trusts in Jesus is justified, saved from God's wrath, reconciled to God, dead to sin and alive to God, set free from slavery to sin, no longer under the law, and there's a whole lot more. And last week we started chapter 8. And chapter 8, by the way, is a chapter that is just chock full of good news. And I don't know if you feel this way, but as I've gone through it over and over again over these last weeks, I've thought that as you get through the chapter, the good news just keeps getting gooder and gooder and gooder. I know it's supposed to be better, but you know what I'm saying? It just it does. You just keep going like, wow, last week we heard this good news. The good news last week was that we are in Christ no longer condemned. There's no condemnation anymore for anybody who's in Christ. And not only that, but we who were once enemies of God are now those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. God Himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in all those who trust in Christ. That's some good news. And we went over that last week. And now there's even more this week. And this week we're only going over like six verses, verses 12 through 17. And so... The good news that we're going to hear this week is this. Last week in Christ, there's no condemnation. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. This week, the good news is this. The Holy Spirit enables us to kill sin. And second, the Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. And that's not even all of it. I'm just trying to sum it up. But that's what we're going to look at this week as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I know we heard the whole chapter recited by Trent, and thanks again, Trent, for doing that. By the way, this idea of like having people recite this whole chapter and memorize it, it started when Trent let me know that he had heard somebody recite a long passage of Scripture. He came into my office one day, and he recited to me from memory all of John chapter 13. And I was so encouraged by that. I said, that's awesome. And he was inspired to do it because he heard somebody else do it. So I was like, well, let's have some people do it so more people do this because this is awesome. And so... Thank you, Trent, for that idea and then uh, for, for reciting to us Romans 8 this morning. But if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's Word? We're going to read verses 12 to 17 again so we get those stuck in our minds uh, before we start trying to understand it here together. Let's pray together first. Father, I thank you for your Word, just for its power, even as we heard it recited earlier, even as we uh, sing words uh, in songs in response to it. And God, now I pray that as I preach, um, that you would help us to see clearly the good news, that your Holy Spirit, the one who allows us to even understand what's going on in our own hearts, the one who helps us to understand what you're saying in your word, that that Holy Spirit would uh, be at work in us, that we would walk out of here with great hope that because your Spirit lives in us, that we can kill sin, and that because your Spirit lives in us and testifies to this truth, that we are children of God, that that would change the way that we think about ourselves and about others. We pray that you would do that work. I can't make that happen by preaching this morning, but your spirit can make that happen in our hearts. So I pray that you would now, in Jesus' name, amen. 
read God's Word from Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 12 through 17. God's Word says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also might be glorified with Him. It's God's Word. Take a seat. We're going to get right into it. Two points. You see in your bulletin, we always put in the bulletin a sermon notes guide so you can follow along if that's helpful for you. And then also uh, a life group guide on the back. If you're not in one of our life groups and you'd like to be, let me know. Uh, Call the office. We'll get you into one. And then uh, if you're not in a life group and don't want to be, this is still a helpful way for you maybe in your own house uh, to go through Uh, and work on applying God's Word to your life. So, take that out if that's helpful for you. First couple of verses really talk about this. By the Spirit, we can kill sin and live. By the Spirit, we can kill sin and live. That's good news. Uh, First of all, it starts out in verse 12 telling us that this is now talking to all who have trusted in Christ. Okay, Remember that Paul is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing things that are true about us as Christians, right? And so he's saying to Christians, those who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's telling them, you who used to be a slave to the flesh, that's the sinful nature. That's all we really were wanting to do was live in our own flesh, like live in our sinful nature, do what we wanted to do. He's saying you used to be a slave there, you're no longer a slave. That's what he said in chapter 6. And now he's saying in chapter 8, listen, You're not a debtor to live according to the flesh anymore. You don't owe your sinful nature anything, right? You're not a debtor to live according to the flesh, is what he says in verse 12. And then he gets to verse 13 and begins this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, Paul is is never very subtle, right? He's usually pretty direct and in your face, letting you know that those who continue to live in the flesh, the result in the end for them will be death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Once we come to Christ, though, we've been told the flesh no longer has dominion over us, but it doesn't go away. Right? So, so we don't, we're not any longer ruled by sin, but that doesn't mean that sin's like totally away from us. We've been totally forgiven of our sin in Christ. There's no longer any condemnation. But our sinful flesh continues to dwell in us alongside the Spirit, and there's this ongoing battle, right? So that once we become a Christian, that's when the war starts. Because now we still have this sinful nature that's drawing us this way, but we also have the Spirit who's drawing us the other way, right? So that's what's happening in those of us who are Christians. And Paul reminds us of the seriousness by saying, for if you live... According to the flesh, you will die. But then he says this, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
deeds of the body is another way of saying sinful nature or flesh, right? So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see there's like a war kind of thing going on here? That there is this sinful flesh that's out to get you. And if you live according to it, it will kill you. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's not, it's not this like light, fluffy um, kind of stuff. This is, this is in-your-face, violent kind of stuff that's going on inside of us who are Christians. Right? That's what we see here. And so because of that, what we're told here, as Christians, we are to, by the Spirit, put our flesh to death. Not tolerate our sin, not minimize our sin, not try to explain our sin or justify our sin, but kill it. Right? And so, uh, as, as uh, John Owen, that's a, a picture of him, uh, a Puritan uh, theologian, he famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you okay sin is not our friend and if we allow it to continue to live and take over more and more we will die if sin isn't being actively put to death in our lives we will die and so we must be actively at work by the spirit putting sin to death this is a command if you note that this is a command not a statement it's just what we're called to do as Christian, I mean, this is a statement, not a command, okay? We don't tolerate sin. We don't flirt with sin. We don't ignore sin. We don't minimize sin. We don't hide sin. We kill sin. That's what we do. So uh, when I was a youth pastor, I actually made uh, this my, my theme for a whole year of youth group, um, uh, kind of coming out of uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And I called the theme for a youth group that year, Make War, to try to help the students realize that they're not just engaged in kind of just this, I'm going to try harder to be a better person kind of life, but that there is actively, in those who are believers, a war going on. So I, I called the theme of youth group that year, Make War. Okay, uh, There's a rap song that goes along with that too, so that's probably part of why I called it that. Um, but that's what I did. And so... I, I was just looking back in my notes from when I did that, and there was going to be this first night of youth group where I was going to introduce this theme for the year, teaching on this passage for those students. And then it reminded me, as I looked at my notes, it reminded me of the story that I told the students. It was a true story that I told students that night uh, about an intruder in the night. Okay, So true story, and I'm just going to tell it to you just so you kind of get a feel for it like, because it was new. It was like the night before I was going to preach this, okay? So I'm going to just, I, I, I actually had like it all typed out, so I'm just going to read to you as though I was reading to them like five years ago or whatever, okay? Last night, I was awakened at 4.20 a.m. to hear a noise in the kitchen. I was alarmed. My wife must have heard it too because she also woke up. Now, I'm a man, and men take responsibility. They risk their lives for the sake of their families, so I decided to do it. After all, I'm the man of the house. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old along with a pregnant wife to protect. So man up, Jeremy. I got out of my bed, put my glasses on, grabbed my weapon, and walked boldly out to the kitchen. I stood by the light switch and listened in the dark. And when I thought I could hear where the noise was coming from, I flipped the switch saw the intruder totally in black standing next to my kitchen sink. 
So I walked over with my weapon and I killed him. No lie. That cricket must have been about this big, right? And when I smashed his face with my weapon, the Kleenex box, he didn't have a chance. Just before bed, Kirsten and I had been talking about youth group this year and the theme, Make War. So when I got back to bed, I reported to her all heroically, I killed it. And she sleepily says to me, make war, and goes back to sleep. And then I told the students this, that's the kind of power that we have over sin if we are in Christ. I could have sat in my bed and whined and complained that that silly cricket was interrupting my sleep. I could have let it keep messing with me for two more hours, getting okay but not good sleep, but I didn't. I had the power to kill it, so I did what everyone hates doing. I got out of bed in the middle of the night, and I went and killed it. If you are in Christ, that's the power that you have. The sin that you keep on holding on to, the one that you keep going back to, you don't have to let it keep on living and disrupting your life. Sure, you might have an okay life as you learn how to manage your sin well. But I didn't want good sleep, and you don't want to. But I wanted good sleep, not okay sleep. And you don't want an okay life; you want a good life. So, are you willing to do the hard, risky work, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God Himself living in you, to get up and put sin to death? That's what I shared with the students. That's what I'd share with you. I mean, I just did, I guess, right? Same, same idea, though, that we who have Christ need to recognize sin as not just like this annoying little cricket who's going to kind of get in the way a little bit, but if I manage it, it'll be all right. We need to see our sin as something that what, just like it says here in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so we cannot, as Christians, have a weak view of our sin, looking at our sin like it's not a very big deal. That was my problem growing up. Before I became a Christian, I grew up in a good church where they taught the Bible, But my view of my sin was really weak. That was my problem. I had a very, very weak view of my own sin. I mean, I prayed a prayer, like you call it the sinner's prayer. I did that lots of times when I was a kid, right? But my understanding of my sin was that it really wasn't that bad because I compared myself to other people, and other people were way more sinful. And plus, I was religious, and so I set myself some standards and I, and I lived according to my standards. My problem was that I'm not the one that gets to set the standards, right? That God is the one who sets the standards, and I was failing to live according to God's standards. I had minimized sin. I had a very weak view of sin. I, I knew that sin was bad, but I thought mostly other people's sin was bad. I didn't think my sin was all that bad. And because of that, I didn't really trust Jesus as my Savior, Right? I just, like, I knew Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm glad. And so I think, well, if I just pray this, then I think I'm good. But I didn't really have an understanding of the depth of my sin. I didn't understand that I was one who desperately needed God's grace. I would also say that I learned, thinking of applying uh, this verse, one thing that I would tell you is you need to name your sin. We don't negotiate with sin, we kill sin. And one of the criticisms of those uh, who, you know, looking at how do we deal with this problem with ISIS, right? One of the criticisms of those who are in power trying to deal with this problem of ISIS is if you're not even willing to call it what it is, how are you going to be able to battle against it? If you can't say the words 
radical Islamic terrorism, how are you going to fight radical Islamic terrorism, right? You've heard that criticism before? I would say the same thing about your sin. Your sin is just as deadly or more deadly than ISIS is. And if you can't even name your sin, how do you expect to go and do battle against it? We need to be honest with ourselves and with other people and with God especially about our sin. We name it and we don't negotiate with it. We don't make compromise. We don't sit down with our sin over a cup of tea and try to explain to our sinful flesh uh, how we can make a compromise. That's not what we do with sin. We as Christians, by the power of the Spirit living in us, can kill sin. Sin is serious. If you don't believe me, read what Jesus said in Matthew 5.29. Here's what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, remember what he said? Gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. Jesus takes sin pretty seriously. And so we ought to as well. And and please note that Jesus is talking about the way that people deal with their own sin. Right? I mean, this this is us looking at ourselves. This is not us trying to kill sin in other people. We don't have the power to do that. This is us, by the power of the Spirit living in us, killing sin that's dwelling still in us. All right, and then finally we need to recognize that we can only do this by the Spirit. If we try and do this by the flesh, if we just try and like, by by our own stubbornness and, and, and stubborn will, try to fight off sin in our lives and don't do it by the Spirit, we're just doing it in the flesh and we're going to end up like Paul was in chapter 7. He's just like, I know the good I want to do, but I can't do it. I don't understand my own actions, right? And like Trent just quoted for us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That was verse 8, I think, right, in in Romans chapter 8. You're in the flesh, you can't please God. You're, You're not going to get there on your own. You do this by the Spirit. In your life groups, you're going to talk more about what this war might look like as you fight it together. The good news is, by the Spirit, we can kill sin and live. And then the good news just keeps getting better. So let's move on. Here's the second point. The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. Verse 14. Verse 14. How to spot one of the sons of God. By the way, this is not like uh, Ralph and Dewey. They wear vests with a, an image of Jesus on the back, uh, and it's leather. That's not. I'm not talking about them, okay? That's how you spot those kinds of sons of God, uh, by what they're wearing. That's not what uh, verse 14 is talking about. There's other ways to spot sons of God besides the leather vest, right? Um, Here's what it is, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this is not saying that you become a son of God by obeying the Spirit, by following the Spirit, right? That's not the order of things here. But those who are sons of God will be led by the Spirit of God. That makes sense? You don't become a Spirit of God by becoming obedient to God. You become a son of God, and then you become obedient to God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so that's what we see in verse 14. Verse 15 has really good news. Good news about security and good news about intimacy. Look at verse 15. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's good news. Notice how Paul says the Spirit allows us to call out to God. Almighty, holy God who has the power to speak galaxies into existence. Almighty, holy God who can cause hurricanes to start and stop whenever He wants. That we can cry out to that God with this term of affection, Abba. Like saying Daddy or like saying Papa. That we can talk to God in that way. We do not have the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I don't know what it's like to live without a dad. I can't imagine what it would be like. I've had and have a great dad. My dad didn't own a firearm, but I always knew that when I was with my dad, I would be safe. I was scared as a kid to go into my basement alone but I was never scared if dad was with me, right? If I had the presence of my father with me, things that would normally cause fear no longer caused fear for me. That's one of the realities of this good news truth that we who are in Christ, whether you had a good earthly father or not, whether your earthly father is still here or not, if you are in Christ, you have God who is your father, close enough that you can even cry out to him, Abba, Father. And His presence gives us great security. The language of relationship. He's not just a God out there, but He's a God who is here. Right? A God with whom we can have intimate relationship. Not all people know what it's like to live without a dad. Or to live with a dad. Right? Many people go to bed at night, and if they would in the middle of the night cry out, Daddy... Nobody would come to them because they do not have a daddy. Right? But there are many who at one point didn't know a dad and were then adopted by a dad who through their adoption now if they were to cry out daddy, somebody would come running. Their reality has changed significantly. That we who at one point were orphaned now have a father with whom we can have an intimate relationship. That's good news. It's a beautiful reality for all who trust in Jesus. We always have a Father to whom we can cry. And then verse 16. Verse 16 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. speaks of assurance and identity. Now you'll note here, that not everybody who has been born in this world is a child of God. A lot of times you'll hear people talk with that language. Well, everybody's a child of God. Right? Well, that's not the sense that you get from reading Romans chapter 8. That's not what you get when you read Romans 1.12, or I mean John 1.12, right? For all who receive Jesus have become children of God. Right? It's something that we become when we are born again through faith in Jesus. Right? Certainly it is true that all who have ever been born are born and made in the image of God and have incredible value, but it's not accurate to say that all are children of God. It's accurate to say all are made in the image of God, but not accurate to say all are children of God. 
We become children of God when we are adopted into the family through faith in Jesus. Right? And at that point, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So for those of us who trust in Christ, it is absolutely and gloriously true that we really are children of God. This is good news. Praise God that he gives us the Spirit to remind us who we really are. Our culture is confused about identity in so many different ways. Whether it be finding your own self-chosen gender identity or dividing and separating based on ethnic identity or political identity, we find our identity in our success, in the the success of our kids, in academics, in their careers. We find our identity in what we've owned or what we've accomplished. But praise be to God that our identity is not found in those things. I was reminded of this. I told you a little bit last week of that kind of unique experience where I'm driving in a brand new BMW up to a Vikings game to sit in the Hyundai club to watch a game at their new stadium. Told you a little bit about that last week. That's what I was doing on Monday. On, On the rest of that week, I was engaged in kind of typical pastor work, meeting with people for counseling, preparing a sermon, all that stuff. And then that weekend we took vacation. On Friday of that same week, I am standing in pig manure helping my father-in-law move 400-pound sows who just want to knock me over, right? And so, so if you were looking like just on Monday, like, who is that guy driving the brand-new BMW to the Vikings game? On Wednesday, like, oh, he's a pastor. And then on Friday, like, what's he doing in the barn, right? Praise be to God that my identity is not defined by any one of those days, not even by being a pastor, Right? My identity is not defined by any of that. My identity is defined by being a human who is made in the image of God, who has, by God's grace, been adopted into God's family as a child of God, as an adopted son who has a new father and a new family in Christ. Praise be to God that he determines my identity. I don't. My job doesn't. My, whatever I happen to be doing during that day, whatever my desires are, that doesn't determine my identity. God determines my identity. Right? That's true. And so, we get then to verse 17. Verse 17, this is the last verse we're looking at today, and then I'm going to try and tie all of this together. Verse 17 says this, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. There's really good news for our future. Okay, here in Romans chapter 8 as well. And the part of the good news, it begins with this, that we are adopted into the family in such a way that when the family inheritance is given out, we get it, right? Because we are now in the family. We'll get more into more exactly what this means as we go through the rest of Romans chapter 8. But for now, we can just pause and delight in the truth that we who were deserving of God's wrath are now the ones on whom God looks and says, this is my son, and he will give us one day our inheritance. Praise God. That, that is a, a dramatic reversal of what we deserved and what God is giving us instead. Again, during your life, you're going to spend more time uh, digging into more scripture on this so you can delight in it together. Then verse, the rest of verse 17, not quite the rest, says this, and fellow heirs with Christ. Really, it makes us, as we're adopted into God's family, fellow heirs with Christ. It's like we become brothers to Jesus himself, receiving the wonderful inheritance of the richest and eternal joy in God's presence. That's what we get. That's what we get. And then, 
he puts this little tag on the end of verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Lest we hear all of this good news and start to think that this is great. That sounds like smooth sailing for the rest of my life. Remember just a few verses earlier, no, that means the rest of your life is going to be war. Once you trust in Christ, there's still going to be this sinful flesh that is making war against you, trying to kill you, and you, by the power of the Spirit, must overcome it as you seek to kill sin, right? And so don't expect that you, who are united with Christ by faith, are going to kind of smoothly sail through the rest of life. Not at all. He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Remember, that was the order of things, that Jesus left his throne to come to earth, take on human flesh, and he was suffering much prior to being raised from the dead and glorified, right? And we would expect the same thing, that while we are now in the flesh, we will suffer, knowing, though, that a day is coming when we will be glorified with him. I think of uh, last week I quoted a bunch of songs that we sing that talk about the fact that there's no condemnation anymore. There's another one that I missed. Uh, It's an older hymn uh, by Charles Wesley called And Can It Be. You know that hymn? It's hard to sing because it goes, it does that thing. So we don't sing it very much. Uh, But it's a good one to quote. Okay. And and, and here's, here's some of the words from that song. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Just looking at what has been done and saying, that's amazing. Isn't it like I get a crown? Me who deserves the wrath of God? I'm going to be getting a crown? There's an inheritance waiting for me in heaven that will never perish, spoil, or fade? I don't deserve that at all. To which we could say, yep, that's true. You don't. But that's what you're getting if you are one who trusts in Jesus. I want to close by just putting these two things together. Because it seems like you've got verses 12 and 13, and it's like a totally different idea in verses 14 through 17. But as I was studying, I saw how these two things are connected. That's what I want to end with today. One of the ways in which we go about killing sin is that we need to recognize who we are. So we kill indwelling sin when we, by the power of the indwelling spirit, recognize, meditate on, and live in the identity that God has given us in Christ. If that's helpful for you, write it down. If it's complicated for you, write it down and think about it more later. Okay? We kill indwelling sin when we, by the power of the indwelling Spirit, recognize, meditate on, and live in the identity that God has given us in Christ. Let me just kind of throw out an example of this. If your view is like my view used to be, That is, that you view yourself as a pretty good person who does a pretty good job of trying pretty hard to be pretty good. Okay? If that's your view of yourself, then you will not kill sin. You'll just figure out how to manage it, and you will not kill it. And if you're not busy killing sin, sin will be busy 
killing you. The thing is, we can't just tell ourselves or someone else, well, all you need to do is read God's word and obey it. Well, in the flesh, we can't. That's our problem, right? I I read this quote this week, and I thought it was helpful. Kind of funny, maybe a little bit helpful. To slap a copy of the Ten Commandments in front of someone who's still under the rule of sin and tell that person to submit is just as effective as trying to make a rhinoceros jump by whacking him on the rump with a blade of grass. Right? So to just hit somebody over the head with God's word and say, obey it when they're still in the flesh is just as easy and effective as whacking a rhinoceros on the rump with a blade of grass and expecting it to jump. In our flesh, we are unable to be obedient to God's word. But in the spirit, if our view is that we are sinners who are enslaved by sin, headed to sure death, and an eternity-long experience of the wrath of God. If that's our view of who we are, we're just talking about this in our Free Church 101 class, that we, we don't in this church sugarcoat in any way what Scripture says about sin. Because if we sugarcoat what Scripture says about sin, then what we say about Jesus doesn't really matter all that much. But if our sin really is as bad as Scripture says it is, then our only hope altogether is that we have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And my hope is that you would walk away from this place today with a sense of the deep, deep love that God has for you. So deep that He would send His own Son that you might be adopted into His family. That you might refer to Him as Abba, Father. That you might look forward to the hope of an eternal inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus. And that as you go through this daily life, you will see sin for what it is, and you will, by the power of the Spirit, seek to put it to death. That's my hope as we walk out this morning. But even if my sermon was all right, you can't, it's not going to accomplish that. That's going to have to be the work of the Spirit in you. And so I want to close in prayer, and then we'll close by singing a song after that. So the worship team can come up while I pray. Let's pray together. Father, I just... Uh, I just feel like I said a lot of words in a short amount of time. And so I don't know um, if I was effective in communicating this morning. But I thank you that it's not dependent on me being effective as much as it's dependent on your Holy Spirit being actively at work. And we know that that doesn't just happen for this short hour and 15 minutes when we're together. But that your Holy Spirit who dwells in us who believe is actively at work in us all throughout the week. And so I pray that this week you would help us again to be attentive to the Spirit's work in our life. That when sin is, is uh, seen by us in our own lives, that we would not take it lightly, but that we would actively, by the power of the Spirit living in us, put it to death. Even as we reflect often throughout the day on the reality that in Christ we are able to kill that sin, and in Christ we are children of God. That that change in identity might change the way that we approach all of life, especially our sin. So God, I pray that your spirit would be at work doing that all throughout this week. Uh, Do that as we meet together in life groups and challenge and encourage one another and dig a little deeper into your word. Be that as we go, be doing that as we go to our workplaces and our schools and our homes and our neighborhoods and our families. Pray that your spirit would be at work. And I am so thankful today, once again, 
for your deep love for us that changes who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.